this acceptance of the Khalifa outside India was instigated. I'm using very consciously the word instigated by Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi and the Muslims were separated by the larger Hindu population in terms of identity, in terms of demands, in terms of ways of life. And they asserted a separate right because then they said that we are people who can trace our origin to some to a lineage which begins from outside India, to the Arabic world, to the Middle Eastern world. So this great attachment to the Middle Eastern world of the Indian Muslim was created 1920 onwards. Ganga Taranga Ramani Ajata Kalapam Gauri Nirantara Vibhushita Vam Bhagam Narayana Priyam Ananga Madapaharam Varanasi Purapatim Bhajavishwanatham Varanasi Purapatim Bhajavishwanatham The present-day conflict, which has taken many shapes in India, but in the last four or five years, is somehow or the other sliding into a conflict between the two major communities in India, the Hindu community and the Muslim community. As you all know that in the last uh, four or five years with the Ram Mandir issue, the resolution of the issue by Supreme Court, beginning of the temple construction, and later on developments, there seems to be a lot of resentment among the minority community regarding the developments that have happened. Now, there is a long history of Hindu-Muslim conflict going back to almost, almost 1300 years in India. But apart from that, if you see the recent conflict, to my mind, this conflict is enshrined in the very constitution which was agreed upon in 1950 and adopted by the new independent state of Bharat. What is the problem? And I very uh, clearly, without any hesitation, call it a problem. What is the problem which is rooted in our constitution. You see, most people refuse to admit this. Most people do not talk about it in very clear terms because they think it is not a matter of certain constitutional rights which are clashing, but it is a matter of failure 
either at the religious level or at the level of priests and organization, temples and churches and mosques and organization, or they think it is merely a conflict between orthodox Malvis and uh, forward-looking people in India. Now, having said that, one has to pinpoint as to where this problem becomes constitutional. I would put it this way. First of all, the very division of the Indian, of the Indian population into minority and majority on the basis, largely on the basis of religion, language, or something very uh, indecisive such as culture, division of the Indian population into minority and majority on the basis of religion, culture, language, etc., is something which was not part of the Indian social polity, Indian social system earlier. We had various kinds of uh, communities. We had various kinds of religious denominations, uh, dharmic, abrahamic, and within the dharmic, various kinds of divisions like Shaiva, Vaishnava, Bauddha, Astik, Nastik, Lingayat, uh, and various other Mat Matantaras, and people living in all kinds of diversity. But we never looked upon these people in terms of minority or majority. For instance, let me take a very specific example. There were some communities you can today, in modern terms, call them religious communities, or in ancient times, you would call them communities based on a darshana or on a mata or a matantara or a prasthan. These are some of the ancient terms which were used for denomination. What is now used as denomination. Uh, in judicial discourse and even in constitution, that denomination was indicated by all these words which I just used, prasthan, mata, matantara, darshana, etc. So there were communities which were very small in number. For instance, let me take a community of Pashupatas of 2nd, 3rd century AD who were Shaivas. And they believed in their founder as Pashupatinatha. And they were called Pashupatas and they were largely Shaiv and they followed the Shaiv Darshan. But they had a lifestyle and they had a method of worship. They had their temples and it is all historically recorded. And the tradition is still alive in some parts of Gujarat. Now, these people were never in very large number, but nobody considered them insignificant or nobody considered them uh, socially backward or to be helped or to be compensated or to be looked after because they were few in number. You see this whole concept 
that we have to look upon a community in terms of its numerical strength is a modern phenomenon. And let me tell you, it is not a democratic phenomenon. Today, wherever there is democracy, it has a role to play in seizing power through democratic means. But then, this whole business of people belonging to a way of life or thought or philosophy and having a certain number. This is a classification which was done by the colonial people. The colonizers of Europe, the British, the Germans, the French, the Portuguese, the Belgians, all these people, when they came to their colonies, they started studying the people, their ways of life, under what they called ethnography, ethnology, or ethnic studies. Ethnic is a Greek word. In ancient Greek, it meant jati, or a community. And this word ethnos was used by colonial anthropologists in order to indicate the description of the people whom the colonizers were governing. So let us take our example. The British come here. They say, who are the people living? They say the people living are Hindus. They are Muslims. Among Muslims, you have uh, various uh, smaller and larger other subdivisions. Similarly, among Hindus, you would have subdivisions. They classified the whole thing. They analyzed the whole thing. They made anthropological charts of the population. And uh, it became the basis of their defining the ruled, defining the population whom they were going to govern. And then they developed a whole, uh, along with anthropology and anthropological descriptions, they developed a whole uh, system of study, which they called Indology in the case of India, or Africology, or whatever in the case of other. And there they said that, well, these are the people whom we are governing. And these people are this, 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 this. Now, this kind of division was never done in either ancient India or in medieval India. Because the population was recognized in terms of certain very simple, verifiable communities. And the state had an approach to them. For instance, the Islamic rulers of India, they considered largely all Hindus as non-believers, non-Muslims, as kafirs, as people whom they had a right, a God-given right to govern. And therefore, for them, it hardly mattered whether somebody was a Buddhist or if somebody was a Shaiv or a Jain. So, for them, the biggest classification was worshipper of images, Buddha Parastha, somebody who worships images. 
So then the Jains and the Bhaktas and the Vaishnavas and they are all alike. And then you had a right to destroy them, you had a right to govern them, you had a right to convert them. Now this was the Islamic system. In this there was nothing called an analysis or control of the population by defining them because they never bothered to define. They said either you are Muslim or you are a non-believer. So the division was very clear between a Mormon, a believer, a Muslim and a non-Muslim. The British started a whole different method of approach of governance. The Islamic principles of governance were based upon a very simple distinction the distinction of believer and non-believer. So the non-believer would have to pay jazia, the non-believer would have to live cert within certain limits, the non-believer would have to be protected, or the non-believer could be uh, treated in whatever way the Sharia law prescribed. The British come and adopt a very different method. They provide a framework of liberality, equality, a liberty, the French Revolution values, but within that they categorize people and then they say, well, if you belong to this community, then this is your right and no more. If you belong to the other community, then this is your right and no more. So this classification of making distinctions between communities and giving them specific or individual rights is something which Western anthropology, Western colonial attitude brings into India. And this is the beginning of what may be called the anthropological study of India or anthropological classification through Western terms. You see, it is not universal or it is not humanitarian. It's based upon the interest of the governors, the white people and the white man's burden. So this classification included for them a distinction of minority and majority. This begins after 1857 in India. In 1857, the British seized power largely from the Muslim rulers because the Muslim rulers, not just the Mughal emperor, but quite a few Muslim rulers and non-Muslim rulers were, were in power and they were defeated. So the British Raj then, when it started classifying, they said, well, there are people of this kind, this kind, this kind. And how shall we mutually adjust them? You see, it was not that everybody would be treated equal. Everybody would not be treated in the same manner. People would be given special concessions or special punishments. For instance, in India, the classification of a huge number of people who were poor, who lived in the forest or on the fringes. They were classified as scheduled tribes or even criminal tribes. So this whole business of tugs, you see, they thought they, they demonized the tugs. 
and they made a community into a criminal community. So dozens and dozens of communities in India were classified as criminal communities. Then some other communities were classified as warrior races, upright and very faithful because they were faithful to the Sikh, uh, to the British. And the prime example is of the Sikhs because the Sikhs helped the British even in the 1857 rebellion or first war of independence, whatever you may like to call it. So the Sikhs became good warrior races. And those who could, uh, regular juts who could, uh, you know, grow hair and have the punch uh, kakar, the five kakkas, they were sanctified as Sikhs. And a whole community was given a certain image, you know, the color of the turban, the, the shape of the kada, everything the British, McAuliffe and others gave them. And they created a whole community which they had defined. So this way of defining communities, calling some good, calling some others bad, was the British method. For instance, the Brahmin was singled out as the most vicious of all, the most devious of all. The Brahmin was considered to be the oppressor in the creation of the caste system. Now, it's so silly that Brahmins who always lived on begging, who were all the time living austere lives and extending their palm to beg from Kshatriyas and Vaishyas and Shudras also, because Brahmins did accept certain things from Shudras as well. They were considered as oppressors and a whole discourse to the present day has been constructed as if uh, Manu was a Brahmin and every text of law was written by a Brahmin as if nobody had a role to play. It is only a small coterie of uh, Brahmins sitting somewhere who manufactured all these things. So uh, it's like, you know, the certain theories which come out of the American academia, theory of uh, critical theory or wokeism, theories that come out of American academia today, they were imagined as if there was a cult of people who was dominating the whole Indian population. So this business of defining the Indian population was done by the colonialists. And within this, they created then later on the distinction between the minority and the majority. So after 1890 or so, the Muslims came to acquire a very special status of minority people. And in 1904 or 1905, I think, they were given special constituencies. And they were made distinct people with distinct law and people who were entirely different from Hindus. So whatever uh, commonness that had existed in the last six to seven hundred years between the Hindus and Muslims, it was wiped out. And different personal laws were made for Muslims. Muslims were not operating or leading their lives according to exact Sharia law. Even though they were Muslims, they had all kinds of customs 
which they followed. And even today, in what is called the Pansmada Muslims, that is the Muslims who are not Asharaf or who don't claim themselves to be uh, coming from Iran, Iraq, and uh, Arabia. Those Muslims, they have a way of life which is very much similar to and uh, Hindus, and they share a huge number of rituals, customs, and activity. So all this was wiped out and made into separate compartments by British anthropology. So here you made the distinction that minorities would have special rights. So it is around 1905, then in 1920, uh, another uh, thing was added. And this thing was that uh, the Khilafat movement created a feeling of loyalty among Indian Muslims, not to the Indian continent or the Indian people, because at this time there was not uh, there was nothing like the Indian state. It was the British state. So not to the Indian continent or to the Indian people, but to somebody in Turkey. So support the Khalifa, who is several thousands of miles away, who has nothing to do with your life, whom you don't even know what is his name, and who has been discarded in Turkey by the Turkish people themselves, who has been deposed by Kamal Ataturk, who was uh, creating a new Turkey, which was also supported by the British because he Europeanized Turkey. So a Khilafat movement was supported in India by our uh, leaders like Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi very erroneously. And then you granted the right to the Muslims to support somebody thousands of miles away and thus create a loyalty to the so-called Muslim Ummah or to the Khalifa. That is why the whole beginning of Muslim loyalty beyond the Indian borders got reaffirmed. You see, this did not exist earlier. The Mughal Empire was not loyal to any Khalifa sitting somewhere. I mean, they may send them gifts or they may send them a few things. But they were people who wanted to govern here. Although they were very conscious that they were separate from Hindus, that they had a superior right to govern because they were Muslims. So that discourse did exist, but they were not vassals or they were not followers of some foreign power who was sitting outside. There may be a notional acceptance of some kind of a Khalifa somewhere, but it was not a real thing. This notion, this acceptance of the Khalifa outside India was instigated, I'm using very consciously the word instigated by Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi and the Muslims were separated by the larger Hindu population in terms of identity, in terms of demands, in terms of ways of life. And they asserted a separate right because then they said that we are people who can trace our origin to some to a lineage which begins from outside India, to the Arabic world, to the Middle Eastern world. So this great attachment 
to the Middle Eastern world of the Indian Muslim was created 1920 onwards. And you find that this is the real bone of contention today. That is why you find that a Muslim will not name his son as Surya or as Sunil, but that he would go for a very, very Quranic name. He would, you know, trying to find a name which is entirely connected to the Arabic tradition. So it should be an Arabic name. So this hinging upon Arabic culture as the origin of Islamic culture is a result of the anthropological and ethnographic studies that the British created. And then they created the concept of minorities. Now, what happens is, you know history well enough, that the Islamic minority asked for a separate portion, nearly one-fifth of India, to be given to them, and hence Pakistan was given to them. And uh, I'm not going to talk about the disastrous consequences of uh, this uh, division and partition. As a matter of fact, uh, this was uh, largely envisaged and executed by the British also. The British in 1922 resolved the Greco-Turkish conflict, that is the conflict between Greece and Turkey, by creating two very separate sovereign states, the Hellenic Republic of Greece and the, the state of Turkey. Now, what they said that all Christians who are living in uh, the Turkish part or in the Byzantine part would be shifted, transferred to Greece. And all the Muslims living in present-day Greece or at that time it was Greece, uh, the peninsula, uh, would be transferred to Turkey. So they executed a division of population. All Muslims will come to Turkey, all Christians will go to Greece. And this was thought to be the solution of the Hindu-Muslim conflict for India also. This was executed in 1922-23. Population was transferred slowly within five years. It was done under state supervision. So there were very few massacres or uh, untoward incidents. They, they did happen, but not so much like as they happened in terms of lakhs of people dying in India. And this idea was then created in Cambridge University. And it was floated as the idea of Pakistan. And Alama Iqbal and various other people started supporting it, and it was executed in 1947. But there was a big difference. The difference was that instead of executing it in the same manner as it was envisioned, as it was thought that there would be a transfer of population, and as it was mentioned, in the partition document, 
the new idea of India as a secular state and Pakistan as a Islamic state was accepted. As a matter of fact, even the Islamic state was considered to be some kind of a quasi secular state because Jinnah said that no, we will have our minorities. However, they were very clear that Pakistan was an Islamic state. But India, instead of being called a Hindu nation or a Hindu state, which was the intention around 1922, when they followed the uh, pattern which they had implemented in Europe if, between Turkey and Greece, instead of doing that, they made India into a secular state where the Muslims who wanted to stay back were allowed to stay. Now, this was the second step of creating a minority, a special minority within the Hindu majority. You see, we have to be very clear what has happened in history. We only think of so-called secular state, so-called secular constitution. And we begin everything from there, but we don't see how this happened in 50 years before 1947 or 50 years or 100 years prior to 1950 this whole concept of the secular state how did it come to be good to develop now this is where the issue between majority and minority became a very different kind of issue during 1930s or 1940s, the issue was whether the country should be divided or not. Whether the minority can live with the majority or not. And it was decided that it cannot. Muslims cannot live with, the, with Hindus. That's why you accepted partition. There was no idea of the secular state in 1935 or 1940 or 1950. Because if it had been there, there would have been no partition. If people believed, if Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi believed, if Jawaharlal Nehru believed, if Sardar Patel believed, or any other great leader of that time really believed that it should be a totally secular state in the sense that Hindus, Muslims, this, that, everybody can exist here as it was, uh, as it was uh, propagated in 1950. If people believed in this in 1935, then how could there be a talk of partition? You believe that Hindus and Muslims cannot live together. And therefore, there was partition. But yet after partition, the concept of the secular Indian state was manufactured. I say manufactured. Because you cannot grant one-fifth of your land to somebody on the basis that because they are of a particular religious domination, therefore they have a right to the land also. Once you grant them that, then they are obligated obliged, then they are obliged to go and live on that land alone. 
they can't claim both things they can't have their cake and eat it too but this is exactly what happened in 47 and the indian constitution was made now when the 1950 constitution was made this whole business of minority enters a phase of what is called inequality now minorities are no longer minorities now minorities are special people with special concessions so in 47 the muslim population of india largely democratically votes for the formation of pakistan and only a few of them go to pakistan the majority of those who voted for pakistan continue to stay in pakistan uh, sorry in india you see i hear sometimes many people like Uvesi and various other Islamic leaders saying that we chose not to go. Obviously, they didn't choose, their fathers or grandfathers chose. They were born here, so they had no choice. But their grandfathers and their fathers chose not to go because they wanted the best of both the worlds. And this is a fact. Because you cannot have both the worlds. You, if you believe that you want the land to be divided, then you are obliged to go there. This is what happened in Turkey and Greece. The British executed it in this manner. All Christians were sent from Ankara and uh, various other cities of present-day Turkey to Athens and to smaller towns uh, uh, like uh, Thessaloniki and other places in Greece. All Christians, they came. There was a huge influx of refugees, Christian refugees, in 1925, 30, and even later. It continued for almost 10 years. And similarly, Muslims had to go out and come to Turkey. But in India, we had both the things together. We had division and partition. In other words, we gave a special concession to those theocratic Muslims who believed in the Islamic State. And we made, instead of making a Hindu state, we made a so-called secular state. And within that secular state, we treated the Muslims as a minority on the basis of their numbers. And then we created a constitution in which minority shall get special rights. Rights which are more equal than the majority. So the minority was made and largely the Muslim minority was made more equal than the Hindu majority. And today, after 74 years now almost, today, the minority, and not just the Muslim minority, 
the so called category of minority people belonging to that category of minority in india as per our constitution are more equal than the majority we all know majority means hindus so we can use the word hindus instead of majority now minority is largely muslim but then the game started of creating other minorities it was on the basis of uh, minority that master tara singh wanted a punjabi suba or a special uh, state for the six but later on he gave up that specific demand but that demand has now resurfaced in the name of khalistan so it is the same thought then after words in india we created several other minorities like buddhists were made into minorities then jains were made into minorities lingayats were made into minority and politically it has become very convenient for the political class to create minorities because you can now play the game of giving special concessions to them and ensuring their votes so this whole business of dividing the people into minority and majority has now degenerated into a game of numbers demographic pressure we are not living on the basis of religion we are not living on the basis of human rights we are not living on the basis of equality as it was envisaged by rousseau equality fraternity and uh, uh, liberty we are living on the basis of demographic pressure that if you can categorize yourself as a demography defined as minority then you get special rights therefore now in the last 20 years there is a scramble in india for people to claim minority status because that pays more that gives more now you would ask me why am i saying this how am i saying that minorities have special status that minorities are not people who have to be guarded against you see what we were taught since 1950 was that muslims who stayed behind need to be protected people who have taken a huge chunk of land because they stayed with the larger piece of land they had to be protected so muslims had to be protected from hindus who gave them nearly one fifth of their country this was one of the biggest sham which was propagated that muslims had to be protected from hindus because they were smaller in number so they had to be protected you can understand this whole business of numbers is not real 
this business of numbers is based upon a discrimination in the favor of the smaller number to give special rights of course there is another aspect to it also that certain sections of population claim special concessions because uh, it is believed that hindus oppress their ancestors so if the brahmins uh, oppress the ancestors of a certain uh, classes which are now called backward classes if they were oppressed 500 or 600 or 1000 or 2000 years ago as per manusmriti then the brahmins and the vaishyas and the baniyas own to them now in the present day a special concession compensatory discrimination so the doctrine of compensatory discrimination has been practiced and is politically very convenient in the age where one person has one vote it is something which is extremely convenient to capture power and therefore this classification which was started by the colonial people but by the colonizers against the colonized continues because now the ruling class within india is the colonizer those who are in political power whether it is the congress or in the or the bjp they become the colonizers for rest of the population because now they can classify the population in terms of minority and majority and what rights are to be given to them and what concessions are to be given to them so we are neither in practice following the traditional ancient system of practicing dharma which is based upon a dharmic equality of obligations and reward the ancient system was that you perform your duties and if you perform your duties then certain things follow as your earning what is now called right but as your earning as something which you deserve your adhikar adhikar in ancient uh, language does not mean right but it means something which i have earned so if i have given daan then i have earned the right to a good reputation so the whole dharmic concept is not based upon my asking or my entitlement because of my color creed number religion etc but because of my performance of certain duties see this was the this was the ancient indian system which continued and this was in a way the a system which was followed even under islamic rule because under islamic law you are also asked to perform certain duties as a momin the concept of your performing duties is very different and therefore earning something in society is very different from our present system in which we are supposed to have rights to ask things from the state we earn our rights not because we have performed duties but because either we are a woman or because we are dark in color 
or because we speak a certain language or because we follow a certain religion or because we come from certain part of India. You see, our parameters are different. Now the state is obliged to give us something because of our natural being. So just because I am born a woman, therefore I get certain rights. Just because I am born a, um, a, a scheduled caste or a scheduled tribe, I, I certain entitlements come to me. This is a very different system from the ancient medieval Indian system of dharmic system where I perform certain duties. And therefore, I earn certain rights. It's exactly the opposite of it. Now, it is within this context that you have to see the minority and the majority. Just because you are a minority, you have earned certain rights. So you have earned the right to be coached, especially for IAS, because you are a minority. You can ask the state to be given special tuition. You can ask the state to be given admission in colleges or schools or whatever. The whole business of minority and majority, therefore, becomes a system which is based upon a classification of human beings in which there can be no equality of any kind. It is a conceived and a misconceived equality. Because you are smaller in number, therefore you deserve concession in order to be equalized. Because it is presumed that those who are majority are oppressing you. This is a peculiar philosophy which the white man brought to the colonies. Because the white man has a huge amount of guilt. The white man enslaved the blacks and they have a huge amount of guilt sitting on them and therefore they want special concessions for the blacks. This was not the situation in India. Now they are imposing this kind of pattern on us by telling us that no, 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 you also have people whom you have oppressed and therefore you have to bring up those people. So you manufactured a history of oppression in order to deflect from your history of oppression which is naked, blatant and well recorded. In India we do not have a history where Jains were massacred or Buddhists were massacred or Shaivas were massacred. We have a history where there were certain conflicts and maybe some even here and there bloody conflict once in a while. But we do not have a history where people were burnt on a stake because they followed a different religion. But now we are being told that yes, this is what happened in India also. So this whole business of ethnographic studies is creating a cultural analysis and identity of India which is based upon totally the, the experience of the colonizer. And it is this that we have to understand. 
if you really want to create a system in which people are equal, then there can be only one method. And that method is that under the law of the land, everybody has to perform duties. And the person shall be rewarded according to the performance. Now, the laws and the duties cannot be the same as they were, let us say, in uh, India 2000 years ago or India 500 years ago. They would be different. And the Indian tradition wants it to be different. Because the Indian tradition of Smriti says that law, that achar, that dharma in the sense of social uh, duty is something that changes. There are certain things that were very good and useful once upon a time, but they cannot be implemented now. You have to have a different system. So the Indian ethos or the Hindu ethos is very clearly open to change. That is why Jawaharlal was able to bring in a law amending the Hindu Marriage Act or the Hindu property rights of women. But he did not have the guts. He did not even have the, the courage to talk about changing the Sharia or updating the Sharia. And to this day, let alone Jawaharlal, even the BJP has no guts. I would be very surprised if one day Shri Narendra Modi comes up and says that we have to update Sharia. For me, it would be a glorious day, but I have no hopes of this kind from him or from the RSS. Because we do not think that in this country, anybody has to reform except the Hindus. The minorities don't have to reform. The Muslims don't have to inform, reform. The Christians don't have to reform. The Sikhs don't have to. Uh, the Jains don't have to be. And we are going to manufacture other new minorities like Lingayats, etc., who should become as orthodox as possible. Because you become a minority when you become classically orthodox. Your whole image of a minority, your whole exclusiveness of a community depends upon your becoming orthodox, not forward-looking. Because the moment you say that, please be forward-looking, please give up triple talaq, or please uh, start changing your names, don't make Kulvinder a name for men as well as for women. Please start having some new name in Sikh community. That then that would be considered as an attack on the identity. So any reform for the minority is seen as a conspiracy to water down their identity. Whereas every every obligation. For Hindus to reform, the majorities to reform is seen as their duty. So we are widening this whole gap and we are creating a society which is neither based upon the classical Hindu 
dharmic values nor are they values of enlightenment they are not even western values they are not values of 19th century enlightenment 18th 19th century enlightenment of equality they are not based upon rousseau even they are based upon a notion of creating equality by giving concession first you presume that there are certain victims and victims have to be devictimized so equality has come to be defined as devictimization now devictimization is not a notion in uh, any european 18th 19th century system of thought either the utilitarians or uh, people who believed in freedom or rousseau or the romantics the european thought does not admit of this kind of thing if it believes in equality of man then it is the equality of men of men it is not the equality of men of certain kinds of color and creed and language etc now the last thing i'll do very hurriedly i'll try to do is to show you how in our constitution this inequality has been enshrined so i am going to take first of all article 25 you see article 25 to article 30 are responsible for constitutionally enshrining a status of inequality among the indian peoples now you can see here free this is article 25 freedom of conscience and free profession practice and propagation of religion subject to public order morality and health and to other provisions of this part all persons are equally entitled to freedom of conscience and the right freely to profess practice and propagate religion there are four things here freedom of conscience can anybody translate this word conscience for me into hindi or sanskrit or marathi or telugu iske liye koi bhartiya bhasha mein shabd hai conscience mahatma gandhi hamesha apni conscience ki baat sunte the aur ant mein ye pata lagta tha ki wo sirf unki hi baat hai unki conscience agar allow kar rahi hai unhe so some deep cavern of your mind which only you know is conscience it is it's a quasi christian concept constant conscience in india there is nothing like conscience no indian darshana believes in conscience it believes in buddhi it believes in viveka it believes in right choice it believes in choosing dharma or adharma which is based upon a logic if rama had to kill bali then there was a logic of departing from the prescription of facing the enemy 
and the logic was that if you face bali then half your power will go to him so it was essential to hit him outside his field of vision so there is a logic to it you have you have to use your buddhi and if you fail to use it then it is adharma just as bhishma performed adharma when he did not intervene when draupadi was being disrobed it was not a matter of conscience duryodhan says that he knows what is dharma but he is too greedy to follow it so what you find here conscience is a quasi christian concept this is the first problem i can always say i am not going to fight for india because my conscience doesn't allow this time i am not going to send my son into the army because my conscience doesn't allow i can be a conscientious objector bina buddhi ke main conscience par rely karke keh sakta hu aur gandhi ji ne jab subhash chand bos ko hataya tha कांग्रेस की ऑफिस से तो वो कॉन्शियंस के बेसिस पे तो हटाया था इतने सारे ब्लंडर्स हमने देखा है उनकी कॉन्शियंस के और हमने उस कॉन्शियंस को यहां आर्टिकल 25 में डाला एंड देन वी हैव राइट फ्रीली टू प्रोफेस प्रैक्टिस एंड प्रोपोगेट रिलीजन प्रोफेस यस टू से दैट आई एम सो एंड सो आई एम मुस्लिम आई एम हिंदू आई एम जय प्रैक्टिस ग्रांटेड according to the prescriptions of your denomination but propagate religion now what does propagate mean the article 25 is giving religion the right to propagate and we all know who is practicing this right for the past 70 years only christians and muslims are practicing this right this right is not being practiced by hindus because hindus do not proselytize historically so when this when this article was written it was known very well to jawarlal nehru that the advantage of this article would be taken by christians and muslims and not by hindus and to this day in reality hindus are not proselytizing as a matter of fact any attempt by hindus to proselytize is considered an oppression on christians and muslims it is considered an offense whereas practice of proselytization by a christian is considered is right and i have seen dozens of christians saying that it is it is a command of christ according to matthew 28 13 that they should proselytize unka dharmik adhikar hai hinduon ko christian banana aur yahi musalmanon ke dwara kaha jata hai this is what the muslims also say that dawa or conversion is something which is prescribed in the quran which is it is true and therefore they can practice it and then they ask is there any such prescription for hindus in their scripture 
क्या महाभारत में कहीं कहा गया है क्या वेद में कहीं कहा गया है डज एनी हिंदू सो कॉल्ड हिंदू स्क्रिप्चर ले डाउन दैट कन्वर्ट अदर्स इन टू योर मत In India, we had among the Buddhists a concept of dharma chakra pravartan, that is, propagating or preaching or talking about dharma. But it was not to save souls. There is a stark difference between the right to save souls and the right to talk and discuss. and today you know that the hindu right or anybody's right to talk and discuss the contents of the bible the quran or the hadith is now being reduced to an offense and is being called blasphemy ye inequality under article 25 itni badh gayi hai ki aaj agar main aapko kahun ki hadith mein ye likha hai तो आप मुझको ब्लैसफेमी के चार्ज पर मेरा गला काटने के लिए अपना धर्म समझते सो दिस इज आर्टिकल 25 एंड आई थिंक इट नीड्स टू बी अमेंडेड नाउ आई कम टू आर्टिकल 26 फ्रीडम टू मैनेज रिलीजियस अफेयर्स this article gives the every religious denomination or any section thereof to exercise rights that it stipulates however this right is to be exercised in the manner that is in conformity with morality etc now this is not exactly uh, article 26 but article 26 largely means that i can fund my religion i can donate but i cannot be asked to donate to a denomination in which i don't believe or in which i don't want to so article 26 as a matter of fact is being practiced surreptitiously article 26 gives a hindu a right to refuse uh refuse donation to a muslim or a christian individually it uh, it protects him from th- that but in practice it does not because when the state gives special awards and special money to minorities then it is hindu money which is being given the tax payers in this country are hindus large by and large so article 26 is being constantly flouted by the governments of india under the name of minority protection or under the name of promoting minority or protecting or whatever you may like to call this special concessionism or compensatory discrimination article 26 is being flouted main individually to keh sakta hu kisi church se ki main aapko chanda nahi dunga lekin main government of india se kaise keh sakta hu ki aap special awards nahi denge musalmanon ko aur isaiyon ko aur as a matter of fact 
governments of india congress or bjp they are taking the money from hindu temples putting them in public exchequer and giving them to minorities not only for hajj but for all kinds of concession to article 26 ki khilli to state uda raha और मैं इतना अशक्त हूं कि मैं कुछ नहीं कर सकता आर्टिकल 27 देखिए आर्टिकल 27 रीइटरेट्स नो पर्सन शैल बी कंपेल्ड टू पे एनी टैक्स फॉर प्रमोशन ऑफ एनी पर्टिकुलर रिलीजन और डिनोमिनेशन हाँ मैं मैंने जो आर्टिकल 26 के बारे में कहा लेट मी जस्ट मेक ए करेक्शन दिस वाज अबाउट आर्टिकल 27 Article twenty six only says that I can give money to my own denomination. So, वो इतना harmful नहीं है. ये problem is twenty seven. Now we come to twenty eight, which has created havoc in the cultural landscape, religious landscape of India. इस article को आप देखिए. It is titled as freedom to. to attendance at religious instruction or religious worship in certain educational institution ab ye iska article 20, 28 ka article 1 jo uh, uh, section 1 hai wo kya kehta hai no religious instruction shall be provided in any educational institution wholly maintained out of state funds तो जो स्टेट फंड से मेजॉरिटी ऑफ स्कूल्स एंड कॉलेजेस और रिसर्च इंस्टीट्यूट्स चल रहे हैं देश में उनके अंदर आप रिलीजियस इंस्ट्रक्शन नहीं दे सकते और रिलीजियस इंस्ट्रक्शन की इंटरप्रिटेशन सन 50 से नेहरूवियन टाइम्स से लेकर कांग्रेस के राज से लेकर बीजेपी के राज में इंक्लूडेड क्या है कि आप कोई रिलीजियस टेक्स्ट नहीं पढ़ाएंगे तो आप रामायण नहीं पढ़ाएंगे महाभारत नहीं पढ़ाएंगे वेद नहीं पढ़ाएंगे आप कोई भी क्लासिकल टेक्स्ट ऑफ इंडिया मेडिवल टेक्स्ट ऑफ इंडिया विच बिलोंग्स टू द हिंदू डोमिनेशन वो नहीं पढ़ाए डिनोमिनेशन वो नहीं पढ़ाएंगे तो आप हिंदू टेक्स नहीं पढ़ाएंगे अब प्रश्न उठता है कि इसके हिसाब से तो आप मुस्लिम टेक्स भी नहीं पढ़ाएंगे ना हाँ ठीक है इसके हिसाब से आप कोई रिलीजियस टेक्स्ट बाइबल और कुरान भी नहीं पढ़ाएंगे लेकिन यहां जो फॉरबिडिंग है उसके लिए एक स्पेशल कंसेशन आर्टिकल थर्टी में दे दिया जाता है जिसपे अभी हम आएंगे आर्टिकल थर्टी के अंदर आप बाइबल और कुरान पढ़ा सकते हैं और इंस्टीट्यूशन खोल सकते हैं और मदरसे खोल सकते हैं आप जो चाहे कर सकते हैं जो जैसा भी रिलीजियस इंस्ट्रक्शन चाहे दे सकते हैं तो अगर आर्टिकल 28 और 30 दोनों को मिलाकर देखा जाए तो उसका नेट रिजल्ट क्या हुआ है पिछले 70 साल में भारत में वॉट हैज हैपन इफ यू कंबाइन बोथ आर्टिकल 28 एंड 30 एंड सी द रिजल्ट दैट नो हिंदू टैक्स सो कॉल्ड हिंदू टैक्स कैन बी टॉट इन स्कूल कॉलेज और हायर इंस्टीट्यूट whereas all the religious texts belonging to muslims christians 
and other minorities and minorities which shall be born in future they can all be taught to agar aap hindu hain to aapke liye education jo hai wo ek education system mein nahi ho sakti it has to be done only outside privately and as we know that it cannot happen and therefore today we have a whole generation two generation to three generation of hindus who know nothing about their religious texts aur ye khud mein ek bahut bada khatra bharat ke aage hai aur religious conflict ka bahut bada karan hai article 28 ke baad aap article 29 mein aaiye any section of citizens residing in india having a distinct culture language of script the right to conserve their culture and script etc so they can practice things through which they can which they can nourish their culture their language and their script so agar aapka script bhi hai now you can see that this this whole article is only meant for muslims it was meant so that script urdu could be patronized language urdu could be patronized distinct culture muslim culture on the basis of which jinna as pakistan and you can see that all over india madrasas will not teach telugu in telugu area but they will start teaching urdu in tamil nadu they will not promote the tamil they will promote urdu so it is an article which is entirely being interpreted and used by the muslim community to create a very special identity which goes against which goes against i am saying the multifarious cultural situation of india and now i come finally to article 30 all religious and linguistic minorities yahan dekhi religion is mentioned clearly it is clearly mentioned that all religious and linguistic minorities have the right to establish and administer educational institutions of their choice iske bare mein kuch zyada kehne ki zarurat nahi hai aap sab jante hain कि इस देश में क्रिश्चियंस ने फॉर्मल एजुकेशंस को क्रिश्चियंस ने कैप्चर कर लिया और 1950 से इसको इस आर्टिकल के अंडर उनको बेस्ट प्रोटेक्शन मिला और देश के जो पहले ब्रिटिश टाइम के अंदर क्रिश्चियन कॉलेजेस और स्कूल्स थे उनको स्पेशल प्रोटेक्शन 1950 के बाद मिला और उनका स्टेटस सबसे ज्यादा है सबसे अच्छा है क्रिश्चियन स्कूल्स एंड कॉलेजेस का और इसी तरह से एट ए स्पेशल लेवल मदरसाज हैव क्रॉप्ड अप इन लैक्स एंड लैक्स ऑल ओवर इंडिया तो आर्टिकल 30 का मतलब ये है कि आप माइनॉरिटी क्रिश्चियन और मुस्लिम्स और बुद्धिस्ट और वट बट इफेक्टिवली इट मींस क्रिश्चियंस एंड मुस्लिम यू हैव द राइट टू टीच 
your religion, you have the right to manage your institutions. You have the right to make their courses. You have the right to teach whatever you want. So in a madrasa, you can teach that Hindus are kafirs and they have a lower status than Muslims. Or in a seminary or in a Christian college, you can teach that according to Christianity, all non-Christians will go to hell. I'm, I am constrained to speak very bluntly, but then this is the truth. This kind of thinking, this kind of constitution, this kind of diversity in the name of minority protection has only created inequality. And it has created an absolute lack of equality, sub-equal status, what I call sub-equal status for Hindus. So the majority has come down to a sub-equal status and the minority has come to a hyper-equal status. We do not have equality. Either we have a hyper-equal communities or we have sub-equal communities and the majority community is the sub-equal and therefore there have been smaller movements in the past where people have asked for equality for Hindu rights or there was a Hindu charter of demands about four or five years ago but unfortunately the Indian ruling class whether it is the Congress or the BJP, they are unable to understand the real situation. Or to put it another way, they are not willing to come out of the groove. They are not willing to give up the political maneuvering that they have been doing for 70 years. And I think the citizens of India should stand up and rise and really establish and change this constitution so that all people living here are equal before law and the letter of the law as well. I would yeah. like you to address instances of the present government, the BJP government, from which the Hindus had high hopes of when the government has not really heeded to the Hindu rights or actually trampled over the majority rights? Well, the biggest example is uh, the biggest example, the biggest example is the management of Hindu temples. The Hindu temples since 1935 have been taken over by the state, by the British at that time. And that situation continues and all big and rich and well-to-do temples which were meant to promote Hindu culture, Hindu religion, Hindu arts, Hindu sciences, which were meant for thousands of years to sustain education, not just to Hindus, others also if they want to take it. They have been, I would say, robbed. I'm using a very, very uh, 
you know, a very, very harsh word. They have been robbed by the state. The state takes away the money, puts it in the exchequer and uses it as it pleases according to the demands of the political party in power. You find right now in Tamil Nadu, temples are being raised to ground by the current government there because that government is entirely anti-Hindu in many of its pursuit. They have this whole Dravidianist attitude where they consider that to be a Hindu is anti-national. So this is one example. And there are so many other examples. The Narendra Modi government has, uh, by leaps and bounds, created special uh, assistances of all kind for Muslims to appear in exams, to have certain educational benefits. And I fail to understand why you should do this just because you want their votes. Why can't you promote the education institutes so that all people can take benefit according to their need? Why can't you increase the uh, contribution to uh, educational kitty on the whole. Why can't it 10% of national GDP go into education so that everybody benefits? And then, of course, we need removal of articles 29, 30, and uh, 28. These articles have to be amended. Everybody should have a right to give religious instruction. Everybody should have the right to open institute and manage them. Why should only minorities? Why can't majority do it? It stands to reason. Make people equal. Why should I not work for my language or for my script? If I'm a majority, why should be I barred from doing it? Or why should my religious instruction not be taught in schools and colleges just because I happen to be the majority? So I think this very sinister uh, kind of uh, diver the sinister kind of planning, which was done by Jawaharlal Nehru in framing of the constitution, has now to be removed. My second question, sir, you were talking about the origin of the word minority and majority, which was based on numbers. So yeah. isn't it true that the Indian government leaves it to the states to uh, determine who are majority and who are minority and even Hindus can no. be a minority in that state? Is that true? Now, you see, there is absolute confusion. The term minority is not defined in the constitution. If the constitution doesn't define minority, then who can make a judgment on it? Not even the Supreme Court. Any, any judgment of a particular community or a person being minority is going to be uh, prejudiced. It is going to be according to the whims of the person who is making that judgment. Because you have not defined that those who are only 5% of the population can be minority. You have not defined that 
minority can be 2%, 5% or 10%. Today, 49.99 people percentage can be minority. This is the given situation. And it is sheer madness. Neither the Supreme Court of India nor the Indian Parliament has taken cognizance of this fund basic, basic fact. And this is because our intentions are not honest. Our intentions are to play to the uh, voter. We are in the business of vote hunting. We are not in the business of creating a equal and just and fair society. Bharati, according to uh, the concept that you just brought up, the idea that Modi government has uh, actually played into it to reducing Hindus and disempowering Hindus, uh, is it not, according to me, what I feel, that even this Sapka Saath Sakwa Vikas has actually empowered the, and emboldened the Muslims and actually facilitated them taking their computer in one hand to actually crush the Hindus instead of do the Vikas for the Muslims. Yes, but that is because of the constitutional provision. You see, if it emboldens, emboldens Muslim or any other community, fanatic Christians, to be aggressive towards Muslims, then that is because you are providing them a constitutional concession. Otherwise, if they are really equal before law, they will not be able to do it. You see, a Christian can knock on my door and say, Please read this Bible. I'd like to preach Christianity to you. Because my Jesus told me that I should go and proselytize. And Article 25 says that propagation of religion means that I can knock on your door. Now, this is done by Muslims and Christians according to the constitution. You will ask me a simple question. Why can't Hindus not do it? Well, when Hindus start doing it, when Hindu says, Aao ghar wapsi kare, then they are considered as criminals. So when a Hindu goes and says, let's do ghar wapsi or let me convert a Muslim into Hindu, back into Hinduism, then you say that it is oppression of the minorities. Then you run to the United Nations, then you go to, the, uh, to CNN and to BBC. But when the Christian comes and knocks at my door or a Hindu's door, then I say, yes, that is his constitutional right to propagate. And then the man comes up and quotes either the Quran or the Bible. So this is a legal problem. It's a constitutional problem which has to be addressed. It cannot be addressed by... Uh, stupid statements like hum sabka DNA ek hai. we all have the same DNA of course we have the same DNA coming from chimpanzees hum sab chimpanzeeon ki aulad hai humara DNA wahan se aaya hai to aaj mein dekh raha hu ki Mohan Bhagwat and various other leaders are talking such uh, sentimental things 
इंस्टेड ऑफ एड्रेसिंग द रियल क्वेश्चन रियल क्वेश्चन ये कि आपने माइनॉरिटी को स्पेशल कंसेशन दिया हुआ है भाई आप ये कब खत्म करेंगे वॉट यू हैव टू डू इज फर्स्ट ऑफ ऑल डिफाइन माइनॉरिटी हाउ कैन ट्वेंटी परसेंट ऑफ ए पॉपुलेशन ऑफ ए कंट्री बी अ माइनॉरिटी मुस्लिम्स आर ट्वेंटी परसेंट और ट्वेंटी फाइव परसेंट हाउ कैन इवन इफ दे आर फिफ्टीन परसेंट हाउ कैन फिफ्टीन परसेंट ऑफ पॉपुलेशन ऑफ अ कंट्री बी माइनॉरिटी देन वाई शुड दे हैव स्पेशल राइट्स यू सी इफ स्टडिंग रिलीजन इज गुड फॉर फाइव पीपल then it is good for 5000 people also agar dharm ki shiksha panch logon ke liye achhi hai to 5000 ke liye bhi to achhi hai na dharm is not something religion is not something spirituality is not something which goes according to numbers it goes according to raising the standard of consciousness in a human being so why should minority only have the right to study religion and establish their institution why not the majority study of religion is good for everybody it has nothing to do with numbers just a study of the constitution or study of modern law or study of uh, philosophy or science or art or music is good for everybody similarly study of religion is good for everybody so we can see that this was a sinister plan to divide indian population devised initially by the colonial masters and then the political parties namely congress and bjp who came into power have continued it for the same very reason because it gives them the ability to manipulate to divide and rule so the congress and the bjp are following the colonial strategy 13 years of bjp rule has done nothing to alter it so bharat ji my question is a very simple when we talk of amendments of these articles from 22 to 30 especially so yes. they come under fundamental rights so uh, we have seen like uh, taking examples from recent incidents whether it's farm bill or the recent agnivir plan uh, the population they are like protesting and uh, for for a simple farm bill they literally hold the national capital to ransom on the day of national importance and government took back those bills so how pragmatic do you think uh, this idea of amending the constitution uh, is and how will it get support from the population as well as how would the supreme court and all intervene uh, see what can be the is, process yes yes it is a matter of opinion building i am not asking people to come out on the streets and start agitating because that would be the the worst way of doing it this is something which has to be done by dialogue this is something which has to be done by discussion this is something which has to be done through various media such as schools and colleges such as television such as social media such as programs like sangam talks 
Sangam Talk, Jaipur Dialogue, uh, Bharti, and so many other people. It has to be done in a very rational manner. Like what I have been saying for one hour is not against any section of people. I am not blaming a particular religion for this. I am not asking people to seek some kind of a redressal. I am only asking for providing justice and amending the law. Now, this is something which has to be done at a very wide scale. And the government should allow it. What has happened is that the government suppress this. The governments do not talk about the variety of religious opinion that people hold in this country. You see, why is it that in schools and colleges there is nothing like a study of comparative religion? Islam may have values, Christianity may have values, Hindu, Hindu ka matlab, Vaishnava, Jain, Ityadi may have values. Where are they taught? Do you, do you think they are taught in schools? Are they taught in colleges? Now, why can't you teach them? Why can't a sixth class boy or girl be taught? That these are the fundamental beliefs of Vaishnavas, Shaivas, Advaitavadis, and Hindus. And these are the fundamental beliefs of Muslims. And these are the fundamental beliefs of Christians. Why can't we talk about those fundamental principles to our children? So that the children can understand, compare, choose and talk about it themselves and express their opinion. We have left this whole thing to certain theologians. In the case of Islam, we have left it to certain Ashraf Maulavis. And the Maulavis are all the time terror-stricken by the uh, prospect of Islam in danger. We have left it to certain Christian proselytizers to talk about Christianity. And now the atmosphere is such that if you talk about any Islamic or Christian text, then you are threatened with blasphemy. Even Sikhs are threatening you with blasphemy. And I have from childhood heard all kinds of criticisms and sometimes very dirty criticisms of Rama and Krishna. From my very early childhood, from school days and college days, I have heard that Krishna was a lecherous person. I have heard this time and again. I have heard this from professors. So there is an inequality. Hindu bashing is something which is considered progressive, legitimate. Whereas even mentioning or quoting a text from the Holy Quran or the Holy Bible is considered an act of aggression. This is the truth about India. And this is what is happening. I don't have to remind you of the specific cases that are happening today. You know them very well. So we have to come out of the state of paranoia. 
that if I talk about your book, then it is blasphemy. If you talk about my book, then that is progressive thought. Do you think anybody will make a speech like what I am doing in the Indian Parliament? I am a teacher and I can talk what I think is right. And I have no power except the power of my words. And I cannot presume to do something which is beyond my power. parliament discussions discussion Hindu blasphemy. But it is also considered blasphemy for Hindus to talk about Hindu scriptures. Hindu scriptures ki bhi authority jo hai wo musalmanon aur unko de di gayi hai aap bilkul sahi keh rahi hain bahut afsos hota hai bilkul wo isiliye ki article 28 ke under hinduon ko hindu scripture padhaye nahi gaye aur dekhiye main ek cheez aur kahunga yahan in the hindu tradition there is nothing like scripture in the hindu tradition there are philosophical texts और उसके अंदर आप जो चाहें अमेंडमेंट कर सकते हैं उसमें से आप कुछ और नया निकाल सकते हैं उसको अल्टर करके एक नया टेक्स्ट बना सकते हैं और ऐसा कोई टेक्स्ट नहीं है सिवाय वेद के और उपनिषद के जिसमें एडिशन और अल्टरेशन पिछले दो या तीन हजार साल में नहीं हुए सिवाय वैदिक सम्मिता के और उपनिषद और आरण्यक इत्यादि के अतिरिक्त ऑल इंडियन टेक्स्ट और हिंदू टेक्स्ट और भारतीय टेक्स्ट व्हाटएवर यू वुड लाइक टू कॉल देम उनके अंदर एडिशंस और अमेंडमेंट्स कालांतर में होते आए जो जो मनुस्मृति आज से शायद 2500 साल पहले लिखी गई होगी वो 2000 साल पहले तक बदल चुकी थी और 1000 साल पहले तक और बदल चुकी थी इसके प्रमाण मनुस्मृति में ही हैं हमारे यहां ये ट्रेडिशन ही नहीं है कि जो किसी ने पहले लिख दिया उसके अंदर चेंज या अमेंडमेंट नहीं हो सकती ये सारा का सारा जो एक फैब्रिकेशन है ये क्रिश्चियंस और मुस्लिम्स के द्वारा क्रिएट किया गया है दैट देयर टेक्स्ट इज व्हाट इज द ओरिजिनल टेक्स्ट स्पोकन बाय देयर प्रोफिट वी ऑल नो दैट वी डोंट हैव द ओरिजिनल बाइबल वी नो दैट बाइबल हैज बीन अमेंडेड दैट देयर हैव बीन ऑल काइंड्स ऑफ वर्जन्स एंड ऑल काइंड्स ऑफ गॉस्पेल्स ऑल क्रिश्चियन स्कॉलर्स डजंस ऑफ देम हैव रिटन अबाउट इट एंड द सेम इज अबाउट द होली कुरान many things we know it is not as if the quran which is in uh, circulation today is exactly what was spoken by gabriel to the prophet to hum sab is history ko jante hain lekin humne ye ek bahut bada creation kar liya hai ki ye sab text jo hai wo inviolable hain aur badlenge nahi whereas in the hindu tradition we are always open to change 
अब जिस कल्चर के अंदर हम डिस्कशन वाद विवाद चेंज एडजस्टमेंट करना चाहते हैं आज आप उसका मुंह बंद करना चाहते हैं बाई ब्रिंगिंग इन ब्लेसफेमी लॉ तो सच्चाई ये है कि आप अपने टेक्स दुनिया पढ़े और जाने वो नहीं चाहते क्योंकि आप चाहते हैं कि केवल आप ही का उसके ऊपर एक कंट्रोल रहे यू वॉन्ट अ पर्टिकुलर क्लास ऑफ मॉलवीज टू टॉक अबाउट द कुरान हदीस एंड शरिया यू डोंट वॉन्ट एनीबडी एल्स टू टॉक अबाउट इट टू डिस्कस इट ओपनली to discuss it rationally to discuss things rationally is not an aggression it is an act of friendship and i think we have to assert that kind of thought now that let us all talk about each other's articles of faith without any malicious or intention we should talk about it with good intentions with friendly intentions but we must talk and discuss now this is essential order of the day and this is the need of the hour as i see it uh, would you Thank like you. to give any concluding remarks about what is the way forward today or any suggestions to what the president can do i think i can do i just uh, ended up making a concluding remark that in all good faith and friendliness we have to discuss each other's articles of faith or theological texts or religious texts with the best intentions and we have to do it patiently we have to do it in an atmosphere of amity and an atmosphere of reason it is rationality that should prevail and if we are able to do this then through this dialogue through this discussion and honest analysis historical literary epigraphic all kinds of analysis a better truth will emerge and our young people will be able to choose their own way after all we should not be so much worried about elders like me we should be worried about our children and we should teach them to think to examine to understand whether it is a given religious text or a contemporary text they should be able to investigate and choose their path and when they choose their path they should be able to have examples of great people in history mahajano yena gatah sapantha the great people have traversed a certain road let us be aware of it 